Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Two tongues coming at you, everybody. Well, just one tongue. Welcome back. One and all to the Two Tongues podcast. Another solo episode coming at you from Chris on modes of sentience. So I'm plowing through, um, getting, um, uh, you know, past the halfway mark. I'm making progress. I got a couple of other chapters to read. Um, and some of them look pretty promising. Uh, there's a big old chapter on Sir Humphrey Davy, somebody who I uh, didn't know much about up until I st- started reading this book. And I'm curious to see what the author has to say there. But um, but today's a, today's an interesting one I have for you. I'm calling this episode Mysterium Tremendum, Descending into Organism. Yeah, if, that's, if that sounds um, mysterious... <laughs> Mysterium Tremendum, it should sound mysterious. If it sounds mysterious, that's on purpose. So there's this idea uh, descending into organism. It, it's, it relates to um, Alfred North Whitehead, who, uh, the author of uh, Modes of Sentience, Dr. Uh, Dr. Shirsted Hughes, has um, spent a lot of time on in the book. Very mind-blowing stuff. Um, really, really enjoy learning about... Um, Alfred North Whitehead, and I'll, I'm going to be doing some more research, uh, I mean, 100% for sure. Um, but this um, this episode today, Descending into Organism, that relates to Alfred North Whitehead. He's the one that, um, he's the one, if you remember, who's called a process philosopher. You know, his metaphysics, his philosophy is called process philosophy. And another word for that that he uses is organism. So descending into organism is going is to be kind of what we're talking about today. What does that mean? Um, I hope you're intrigued because you're going to find out. It reminds me of something, and I'm just going to share it with you because, because I've got a captive audience. Um, this, this little phrase, descending into organism, it reminds me. Uh, it's probably the word descending, but it reminds me of a theme from mythology, from world mythology. It's descending into the underworld or descending into death. And I'm struck with curiosity about whether what we're going to talk about today and this mythological theme of descending into death or descending into the underworld, if they aren't connected, because I think maybe they are. And I'm going to have to do some more thinking about it, but it's really interesting. Um, Just to kind of refresh your memory, um, we've talked about some examples of this on the podcast already. The most obvious one that comes to my mind is is the myth surrounding uh, Jesus. So if you're a Catholic, one of the things you believe is that um, Jesus descended into hell. 
in the three-day period from the time he was uh, crucified and died until the resurrection, right? He, he was three days in between when he was in the tomb. And again, Catholics believe he descended into, uh, into hell. Um, and it's important. It's important theologically if you're a Catholic uh, that Jesus did that. And then when he came back to life, it wasn't just a magic act. It wasn't just uh, you know a mortal human being. Uh, dying and coming back to life, surprise, uh, no, 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 it was a, you know, a very, very different story, whether Jesus was mortal or not, I guess is neither here nor there, but he died and descended to hell, and then came back, it's a very different thing, but descending into hell and coming back, descending into death and coming back, um, you know, that's something that we saw in Greek myths, um, um, the myth about Eurydice, if you remember that, um, where, uh, uh, where, Jesus, oh, now I can't remember the gentleman's name in the myth. Um, it's not coming to me because I'm thinking too hard. But in any case, she dies and her lover descends into hell, goes into the afterlife to, to save her. Um, you see the same sort of thing happening in uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So descending into hell happens in religion. Uh, it's important. And it means something. And what it means is sort of difficult to understand. And Alfred North Whitehead and uh, Dr. Shurston Hughes today are going to offer, they're going to offer maybe a different explanation for this, this story that sticks with us, that we repeat and continue to tell. This mythological story about descending into hell and be returning to, to the land of the living with, often with something. You know, something that you were seeking in a supernatural place, you know, with Eurydice, it would have been, you know, returning with uh, his, his wife, you know, um, with uh, with Gilgamesh, it would have been returning with the with the uh, the plant that was the secret to immortality, you know, that kind of thing. There's something that's being brought back from this other place. So I know that's. Um, it's all clear as mud, as I like to say, but uh, but I, I want you to keep it in mind and tell me what you think when we get to the end of this. All right, so I'm going to open this up this way. Um, I'm going to do something we've done before. I'm going to do it in a little bit of a different way, um, but it's going to sound familiar to some of you, so I'm just giving you some warning. Um, all right, here we go. What is the sun? Is it made of matter? Of dancing conglomerations of hydrogen and helium atoms? Or is it the dance itself? Is the sun the dance itself? The process of hydrogen becoming helium. The forces of their movement and the reactions that ensue. Or is it both, perhaps? Is there really a difference? What about its boundaries? Is the sun limited to its material core? Or does it include the heat and light that emanate from it? How about the gravitational force it exerts on space-time? Does it include that too? Is that, is that part of the sun? What about the effects of that gravity? Is the sun also the pull the planets feel as they spin? What about the warmth we feel on our skin? Is that the sun too? What about the sugar? the plants made with the sunlight? What about the energy I receive from consuming the plant? What about my body composed of sun energy and my visual perception 
that's made possible only by that same light. Is my perception the sun too? So these questions reveal a fundamental paradox of reality. That we cannot ever distinguish precisely where one thing begins and another thing ends. Or even what a thing really is at all. What a thing is never stays the same and always bleeds into other things. Things, deep down, are really something more like transformation. What does that say about matter? What does it say about God? Oh, and might we gain unique insight into this through psychedelics? How about we find out? All right, I call this first section... Democritus versus Heraclitus. Chaos versus order. Here we go. All right, Dr. Shersted Hughes kicks us off with a quote from, uh, again, one of these middle chapters here. It goes like this. Does something underlie change? Or is change itself fundamental? Is there being below becoming? Or is becoming below being? To adopt the first response is to adopt substance metaphysics. To adopt the second is to adopt process metaphysics. All right, that re really could not be a better opener. This is what we're going to be talking about today. And this is what I was trying to paint for you when I was talking about the sun a minute ago. Remember, I said, what is the sun? Is it made of matter? Is it made of dancing conglomerations of hydrogen and helium atoms? Or is it the dance itself? Remember, that's the question I asked at the beginning. Is the sun what it's made of, this, these you know, material items? Or is it what they're doing? Is it something else, something that goes beyond these particles? Something that, would, that Whitehead would call process or organism. And that is what the author is asking us to consider right now. It's like when we're thinking about something like change, something so fundamental. Remember, everything in reality is constantly changing. Think about yourself as an example. Are you the same as you were yesterday? Are you the same as you were a year ago when you were a child? Do you expect to be the same tomorrow or in 50 years? We're always changing. The economy's changing. Fashion's changing. Language is changing. Um, you know, atoms and molecules are binding and changing all the time. Everything is changing all the time. So that's pretty goddamn fundamental, right? What he's asking is, is there something underneath that change? Something that's causing it? Or is the change itself something that is all by itself fundamental? Doesn't need to be, doesn't need to have anything underlying it at all. And he asks that question a different way, in a philosophical way, but I like it. He says, is there being below becoming? So the way I like to look, remember, when I, when I see the word being, what that means to me is the material cosmos. Everything, everything, you know, and it, what we would call reality, that's being. So what he's saying is, is being is something necessary for something new to come about. That's becoming, right? Becoming is the change that brings something new, you know, in, into reality. Do you need to start with being to get becoming? Because that's question number one. Or is there something like becoming that's below being? Does being um, emerge from becoming? Like becoming is this 
fertile seed that is just sprouting out plants, you know, every which way. Is it the becoming part that underlies being or does or does being underlie becoming? So this is the question that's being asked. It's a really, really fundamental uh, philosophical question. It's one you've probably never heard before. I'm sure nobody's asked you that question before, unless you're a philosopher. Um, but these questions correspond to two different ways of looking at the world. One of them you're already familiar with. Substance metaphysics. You're already familiar with that. Substance metaphysics. That's the scientific paradigm. That's the way we look at the world. We're already familiar with it. We'll talk more about that. Process metaphysics is, is something else. Process metaphysics is what Whitehead adheres to and what Dr. Shirsted Hughes seems to adhere to as well. Um, it's something that that doesn't say um, that there's some material basis that's fundamental, like atoms. It says there's something else that's fundamental, something more like transformation or change, something that Whitehead calls process. So what we're going to do today is talk this through, and we'll try to figure out um, if, you, if you guys are going to still be substance thinkers at the end. Because we're going to ask questions that, that Alfred North Whitehead and Dr. Shirsted Hughes are going to try to answer that, and, and other facts that we're going to sprinkle in here that are going to illuminate why you might prefer su the substance type of thinking. Um, kind of subconsciously or maybe unbeknownst to yourself, it's something that maybe you haven't considered. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to consider it together and we're going to decide, are we substance thinkers? Or do we need to be a little bit more hippy-dippy and get down with some Alfred North Whitehead process thinking? All right, that brings me to quote number two. It goes like this. In physics, a general shift from substance to process thought was suggested by the realization that electromagnetism did not require an underlying luminiferous ether. That word tripped me right up. Uh, so if you guys don't know this word, luminiferous, here we go again, luminiferous ether. This was an old sort of, you know, turn of the century scientific idea that was never proven, but the idea was that light moves and we know it moves. And so we, the scientists asked ourselves, how does it move? Because everything that moves has to move through a medium, right? Fish move through water, human beings move through an, an, an you know, an air-based atmosphere. There's always something that allows us to move, if light is moving, what is it moving through? That was the question. And they said it was the luminiferous ether, this magical substance that nobody can prove exists, but it must because light moves. So there must be something up there that it's moving through. And this was a big scientific debate for a long time. And what we, re what we realized one day was eventually there isn't such a thing as a luminiferous ether. There is no static underlying medium that's needed to facilitate light moving through the cosmos. It doesn't need to have something to move through. No static medium, okay? So this is what he's pointing to. He's saying, scientific thought started to shift away from substance and towards process thinking right there when scientists discovered there is no lumin luminiferous ether. And again, that's important because what was realized is that what, what we thought was up there, that light was moving through, was an unchanging static substance 
through which light could move, like a snake moving through sand or something. Okay, so then he goes on. He says, in biology, there occurred the parallel realization with the theory of evolution. A species has no underlying static design, but rather each species was a transitive phase in a cosmically long process. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Think about that. You know, if you're one of those conservative, um, literal, you know, uh, Bible interpreter type folks, you're going to say God created animals just as they are with a static design, right? Um, that's the kind of argument that we're beginning with, right? That, that, that species have some sort of static design. That's why when a monkey has a baby, it looks just like it's my mom and dad. It's a monkey, right? There's a static design that's being duplicated. The design itself is like a plan. And there may be things that go wrong when the plan is put into action, right? I mean, there, may be, there may be some kind of genetic issues that, that happen during the production phase, right? We're not saying that. What we're saying is that the design for the species is the same. And then Charles Darwin comes around and says, nope, sorry, let me just pull that rug out from under you. There is no static design. The species are, are in a constant um, slow motion process of that we call evolution, a process of transformation. One species will become another and another and another, and it's never static. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. There's no static luminiferous ether. There's no static design for biology. That all this stuff that we thought was a rock, you know, um, that wasn't changing, that we could rely on, we're starting to find out you know, in the, uh, in the 1800s, really, that's not the case. Now, in metaphysics, the idea that there was a substance we call matter that underlies everything but doesn't change, it's not susceptible to change itself, that idea started to become more and more questioned. Because remember, there is no static medium for light to travel through. There is no static design for evolution. So if there's nothing that's static and unchanging that we can rely on, we have to start thinking about other solutions, right? We have, to, we have to start thinking differently. What is there left that's static that we can rely on? Anything? Anything? All right. So uh, Dr. Sherstead Hughes continues. He says, The whitehead is the paradigmatic process philosopher. We glimpse in the fragments of Heraclitus. Now, now we're going all the way back to ancient Greece, and we've, we've talked about Heraclitus before, but his famous saying is this. All is flux. All is flux. Man, I wish I spoke ancient Greek, or I wish I'd taken the time to maybe figure out how that's pronounced in ancient Greek, and I could give that to you. That'd be cool. So apologies, I can't do that. But all is flux. Everything is change, right? Everything is transformation. This is what one of the early pre-Socratic philosophers brought to the table when he was examining reality and trying to figure out what, what the deal is, where it, all, where it all comes from, what is it all about, how does it work? Heraclitus said, everything is transformation, all is flux. All right, back to the book. He says, flux, change, becoming, process. All, all of those words are antonyms for underlying things. Remember, we were talking about substance before, we, we, we had this idea that the underlying things, underlying reality, those are atoms, right? They, those are the things that make matter, right? And our scientific paradigm today tells us 
more or less. Those are the things that are unchanging. Those are the things everything is built from. Um, what what Dr. Schurstedt Hughes is saying, on the contrary, is that flux, change, and becoming, and process, like Alfred North Whitehead would say, that all of these words uh, are words that are used to describe underlying things. So you might think of the word Adam, and someone else might, like Whitehead, might think of the word flux. And there's a big difference between the two. But it's, if, if it's important for the sake of argument now that we at least introduce the idea that it's possible that, that something like process or transformation or flux could be considered the thing that's fundamental. Instead of an atom, it could be something like flux or process, whatever that means. So we're going to find out what that means. Um, Jordan, P- Jordan Peterson in Maps of Meaning, would, when he talks about change or flux, he, he uses the word chaos, this mythological term, chaos, to talk about it. And the ancient Greeks, uh, they made this dichotomy between chaos and cosmos. Uh, Jordan would use the word chaos and order in Maps of Meaning instead of cosmos. He uses the word order. Um, but the idea is that chaos is the is the font of potentiality it's 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 undifferentiated potential it's something that's always producing or has the ability or capability of generating new and novel things and bringing more and new things into into being into the world um, that's this idea of chaos so imagine that as what is the fundamental thing not an atom but something like that that lies at the basis of reality so that should be mind bendy for you and if you like it, good, because we're going deeper. All right, he says, he says, words seem to gently push the belief in substance metaphysics. I'll stop there for a second. Words, he's talking about language. He's like, the way that we speak is pushing people gently towards this idea of substance and away from this idea of process. And what does he mean by that? So he, what he's tra- we're planting a seed here of something we're going to talk about more. But it's the idea that there are things going on that really aren't so important to the ideas that actually influence us one way or the other in how we think. And they're really subtle. So he's pointing these things out, which I think is interesting. All right, he says, words seem to gently push the belief in substance metaphysics because words are discrete units seemingly reflecting discrete things. He says the atom was conceived as the smallest of such things by the ancient Greek Democritus. All right, so we had a little bit of Heraclitus a second ago. Now we're getting Democritus. So let me just stop and and dissect this a little bit for you. So he's saying when we speak, we have words that correspond to objects. And that's how we think. That's how we perceive. So it's like a word identifies a discrete thing, like a cat or a table, or a sunset, right? And that makes us think that reality is made of discrete things, like a cat or a sunset. He's like, the implication here is that it may be possible that that's not the case. That when we look out at reality, we see discrete things. And we see discrete things for a reason. But just like we were talking about earlier when we started this, about the sun, that it's possible that the, that something like that, like anything, but the sun is a good example, as good as any, isn't a discrete thing. It's not an object, you know, limited to this core of mass burning in space. That it has lots of other things going on 
that are that are part of it that go far beyond what you would generally be comfortable calling the sun. And that includes the energy the plant makes with the sunlight and the energy that I get from eating that plant. There, there's a way in which my life, the sustaining, the sustainment of my life and my body, right? We're all made of stardust, right? Even my body, it's the sun, okay? But I think of myself as distinct from the sun. And this is where it gets muddy. He's saying, hey, it might just be the way we speak, it, it gets us predisposed to thinking that the world is made of individual things because we don't see for, for some reason or we don't emphasize for some reason how connected everything is. And maybe there is no such thing as discrete at all. Maybe there's no such thing as things at all. Maybe everything is one. It's something that Whitehead calls process or organism. <laughs> organism, right? Like yourself. One thing. All right, he goes on. He says, We symbolize the substance process dichotomy under the opposition Democritus against Heraclitus. Remember, Heraclitus said all is flux. Democritus said all is atom. Right? Atom is substance. Flux is process. Democritus versus Heraclitus. Are things fundamentally flux or are they unchanging atoms? All right, let's, let's start with unchanging atoms. I'm going to call this next section substance. Okay, the concept substance has taken a number of meanings throughout history and throughout the history of philosophy. And uh, Dr. Shirsted Hughes is going to give us, you know, really high level how the word substance has been used. So let me give it to you. He says, substance has been understood as that which truly is. Okay, so you can understand maybe the word Adam comes to mind. That which truly is. That which is capable of action. Okay. The underlying bearer of properties. Right? Things have certain properties. Where do those properties come from? We would attribute them to something fundamental about it. He says that which remains identical throughout change. So that's, again, maybe, a, uh, maybe an outdated um, uh, way of understanding an atom, but you can understand an atom like is, is something that without the idea of um, uh, uh, what is it called atoms break down over time uh, anyway it doesn't come to me but without that idea you can imagine an atom is something that's unchanging or at least through, through vast sums of time unchanging it's also thought of as that which requires nothing else in order to exist that to which everything is ultimately reducible So everything's made of atoms, right? So everything can be reduced to atoms. This is the idea. This is the materialist, physicalist, scientific paradigm. That's, what, that's what's being described. Substance, okay? Then he goes on. He, he brings up a philosopher, Immanuel Kant. Uh, he says, Kant argued that we could never know that which lay behind the qualities we perceive. Right? So we can perceive things, but we can never really know what lay behind them. We, all we have access to is a subjective impression. We really don't know what is objective behind that uh, impression or representation. We don't really know what's there. And he says, despite Kant's influence, you know, who, who again, is, is uh, one of the biggest names in philosophy who pointed this out, despite his influence, he says, substance metaphysics of materialism 
holds sway. It's to this day, this, it, it's the substance type of thinking, the, the atomic type of thinking, this materialism. This is, this is how people think by and large. And he says, this metaphysics was adopted as the foundation of what we today call science. So that should make perfect sense to you. But then he counters that he says process, though not anti-scientific, is meta-scientific in the sense that its replacement of science's foundation with process offers a supposedly greater overall view of reality with greater opportunities for knowledge. So I'll say that differently. He's saying what process thinking does is it takes this idea of an unchanging atom out of the materialist view and it replaces it with process, with this, with this transforming flux, whatever that is. It takes away the atom and it replaces it with something like transformation. So he's like, look, process thinking is not anti-scientific. It's just changing the perspective of empiricism. It's changing the perspective of science by replacing the atom with something that's, that's constantly transforming. And I know that's strange because we're trying to understand, all of us right now are trying to understand what it is that can be the foundation of everything and constantly transforming. It's like we want to make it, this is right to the point of what, he, of what he's trying to say. In our minds right now, we're trying to take this flux, whatever that is all by itself, this abstract idea, and we're trying to make it substance. We're trying to make it a little ball. Like in my mind, there's this little ball that's spinning and changing shape and changing color. It's like, you know, it's, it's never the same. It's trans, transforming, but I'm trying to, even, even in thinking of that, I'm trying to make it a substance. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to give it like a clear boundary. It's a ball I can hold in my hand, even though it's transforming. No, that's not what process is. Remember, the sun doesn't have clear boundaries. It bleeds into everything else. It's not a ball that, hold, that I can hold in my hand, right? Process is something more abstract than that. So it's really hard to understand, but it's also very magical and very beautiful if you can let yourself go with it. Which brings us to our next section, which I'm going to call, Have We Been Bamboozled? This section is called, Have We Been Bamboozled? <clears throat> I want you to know I spelled bamboozled many times before, you know, incorrectly. Autocorrect is not great at correcting bamboozled, but I figured it out. So what do I mean here? Um, have we been bamboozled is more of what we were talking about earlier when I was talking about how language kind of predisposes us to have this uh, substance thinking, you know, this materialistic scientific way of thinking, and, and away from this hippy-dippy flux, you know, uh, hard-to-define way of thinking. And so here's a bit on that. He says, language conduces to substance thinking. So we talked about that a little bit already. He says, in the proposition, such as the sun is bright, the subject is rendered separate from the predicate is bright. This leads one to consider the subject as something distinct from its attributes. Okay, so, right? So this makes perfect sense. Let's take a look. If I say the sun is bright, in that, in that phrase, I, th I take out the sun as an object and the, bright, and the word bright as a description of the sun. However, bright is its own word, right? It's a discrete word, right? Not just the sun can be bright. Lots of other things can be bright. So it's, a, it's its own word. The sun is bright. 
makes me think of the sun as a thing and bright as a thing. And it's just a really subtle way that you don't really pick up on it unless somebody pushes you on it. That saying the sun is bright makes me think of the sun's brightness as somehow being different from the sun itself. There's the sun and this brightness, right? But process thinking is going to ask you to pump the brakes on that. And and it's also really logical. Is the sun different from its brightness? I think we'd all agree, absolutely not. The sun is bright. That's one thing. Yeah, we look at the sun, we can say it's bright. But that's what a sun is. You know, you can't you can't take away brightness from, from a star. It's just part of what it is. It's one thing. And that's important because if you agree with that, that's one piece of evidence towards, it's one small step towards process thinking. All right, he says, thus the idea is pushed that in underlying changes in brightness, there exists an underlying unchanging thing. So the sun, again, the sun is separate from its brightness. It's unchanging behind the brightness. You might have a brighter sun, a brighter star, a dimmer star. You might have the same star get brighter and dimmer for different reasons, right? But something underneath the brightness is unchanging. No, the sun itself is changing. That's that's why it's brighter one minute and not so bright the next. They're not different things. They're one thing, right? I think we can all agree. He goes on, he says, process philosophy argues that the so-called substance and attribute are one in the same process, right? And that's interesting too, because we know the sun is up there burning and there's these things going on in the sun and it's causing brightness, right? There's, there's a process going on, something that we call nuclear fission or fusion. I don't know which it is, but there's something going on, an actual process. And that's what he's pointing to. The sun is not a thing. It's a process. Right? Yes, of course. Of, of course it is. And then, again, the, he, he doesn't jump right out and say this, but I want to ask you this question. A human being. Think about a human being the way we just thought about a sun. It's easy for us to think about ourselves as a thing, a thing called a human being. But are we? Because we're constantly changing, right? And what's going on inside of us? You know, let's say the, the, the metabolism process that's going on. You know, the filtering of my blood and bile and food, uh, you know, all these processes that are going on inside my cells and my organs and my body. Isn't that what I am too? Aren't we kind of a process? I think we are to some degree. I think we are. So, so process subsumes object and, attribu- and, and its uh, attributes into one, right? Are things things in isolation, or are they always becoming, as he said earlier, and interacting, and therefore not a static thing, but a process? This is kind of the idea here. So back to the book. The brightness of the sun is a part of the sun. It's not an attribute. Agreed? He says... Even so-called relational properties are not separate from the subject. Relational properties. So think about the effects the sun exerts on the planet. How it's related to the planet. How about the warmth that we feel? The vitamin D that gets passed to you and I. What about all that? Those things aren't separate from the sun. And it's so strange. 
so trippy, right? They aren't separate from the sun. Even when you're using that vitamin D in your body to do whatever vitamin D does. It's like a little bit of the sun in there. You've absorbed it. You've taken it into yourself, literally. All right, and he goes on. He says, even the words cause and effect falsely divide what is in actuality a unified process. I think this is, this is great. Even the words cause and effect falsely divide what's in actuality a unified process. Okay, so I push a domino over and it knocks over a whole series of dominoes, cause and effect, right? He's saying no. There's a physical process happening in the dominoes. We, call, we can call it cause and effect and pretend that they're different things or components, but in truth, they're one thing. They're a process, a physical process. All right. He goes on, he says, for process thought, a thing is a process that has endured in a certain form over time. Okay, so time is definitely a fuzzy idea in, in this type of process philosophy. But the idea is you can call a thing a thing as long as it endures in a certain form. As soon as it changes into something different, it's no longer that thing anymore. But it's still process. It's, it, it, it never wasn't process. Um, so time, again, has something to do with how long a form endures. Now, he says, Whitehead gives the example of an Egyptian stone obelisk. So we think about those things as timeless. You know, they've existed for thousands of years in ancient Egypt, completely unchanged through, through all of, you know, human history, right? We think about those things as pretty permanent. So he says, Whitehead takes the example of an obelisk, though it appears to be an unchanging thing. It is, in fact a heaving flurry of molecular, gravitational, electromagnetic activity that will one day pass away in its current form. He says there is no difference between a thing and, and an event. It is all event. To be is a verb. Okay, so hair standing up on my arms. I fucking love it. There is no difference between a thing and an event. And he says, to be is a verb. Remember, a verb is an action word. To be, being is a verb. It's a process. It's something that's continually happening. There is no difference between a thing and an event. So you can understand, um, you can understand, well, the obelisk. It wasn't always an obelisk. It was carved into that. And it won't always be an obelisk. It's going to get broken down eventually and become something else. So the obelisk is the process of it, of its becoming an obelisk and it's becoming everything else that it will be in the future. It's one continuous event. A thing is an event. Think about your life. You think of yourself as a thing, as a human being. No, you're an event. You're something that was born and will die. What do you call that? E an event, Right? One continuous event. And it's funny when uh, Dr. Shirsted Hughes says to be is a verb because, because, again, going back to my mystic experience, one of the things that I've said many times is that God is a verb. And I think there's some parallel there. 
to being and God, in my opinion, are not different things. So this is basically him saying the same thing that I said, which I find to be very interesting. All right. All right, so let's continue with our bamboozlement here. He says, our human visual system has, in part, evolved to outline spatial areas. This has had the tendency to push the belief that a thing exists according to the spatial figure our vision cuts out of reality. Okay, that the idea here is you look up at the sun and you see it. You see a, a representation. You see something, and you believe that's, you know. Uh, an object that exists just like it seems to exist in this spot up in the sky, just like it seems. And the truth is very different from that, right? But he's saying the way that we, the way that our visual system works makes us think about the world like that. Things seem, they look like discrete objects. And so again, just like the way we speak in language, using words to describe discrete objects, that this is tied. Again, our, our language is tied to our visual system, and they were designed by evolution for a specific reason, not to show us the truth necessarily, but to keep us alive. All right, he goes on, he says, there is practical evolutionary advantage in seeing the world as composed of individual bits, but we must be careful to realize how we are being tricked by our biology. In truth, individuality extends beyond that which we see in space and time. The sun is more than a sphere at a certain instant. So he's basically just pointing out here that evolution has driven our biology. And even our language is, is evolving, you know, for practical reasons. And those practical reasons are very practical reasons, like staying alive Securing food and shelter and all the things that we need to pass on our genes. That is how our biology is adapted. Not to the mysteries of the universe, not to the deepest truths of reality, but to whatever truths are going to keep us alive. And that's a good point. It's one that we can't take for granted because we have to imagine that there might be some potential for bamboozling ourselves by not understanding our, the difference between our perceptions and reality or our language and reality. All right, then he brings up Henri Bergson again. He says, Bergson argues that even our scientific understanding of time has been subjected to our spatial bias. Real time exists not as a timeline, but rather as an intuited duration that comprises our experience. That's interesting, because remember, time is a sort of a very tricky concept in process philosophy. He's saying that that time has to do with our experiences and how long they seem to last. And again, our experience of a obelisk, right, who's, who has that same shape for 5,000 years, um, that's going to seem like it's endured over a long time to us, because our experience of it hasn't changed, and the presumption there is that if, if our perception of it were changing, then our perception of time would also be changing. And I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting for lots of reasons, not least of which is relativity. You know, Albert Einstein said that when he was describing relativity, he said, I can't remember the exact uh, 
the, the exact example, but he used an example of like spending time with a beautiful woman, you know, or, you know, having a good time, you know, when you're doing that, time can seem to speed up or slow down, right? Like imagine if, if you've ever been in a car crash, you'll know what I mean. It's like time slows down and every little incremental change in this you know, slow motion catastrophe that you're watching in the rear view mirror, you experience it as though it lasted, you know, minutes, uh, that kind of thing. So time being connected to our, the perceived duration of our experience, that is real. Not, not only does it seem real, it's re it's really real, you know, in the physical laws described by Einstein's theory of relativity, really, really interesting. You know, time is a really, really interesting concept. All right, he says, Substance is not atoms and instants. Such belief is a practical ploy. Process is real. Okay, so what Dr. Shurston Hughes is saying is that substance, as the way that we think about atoms, and even time, when we think about instants, that these things aren't real. Atoms and instants aren't real. They're abstractions. What is real is process, right? So in process, you can get an atom. In process, you can get an instant, but only by ripping it from process, by pulling it out of this larger thing we call process and pretending that it's not, that, it, that it's a thing all by itself. That's how you get an atom. That's how you get an instant. Otherwise, time and reality are nothing but a constant flux, something that Whitehead calls process or organism. Which brings me to our next section. I call this process. All right, so go back to the book. If substance is fundamental, and if there is nothing more fundamental than change or process, then one could say that process is substance. And again, hair standing up on my arms. Absolutely. I love this. I love this. A little bit of a tweak in, uh, you know, the way that our logic wants to pull us. But if you look at it from this way, 100% makes sense. I completely am on board. If you're one of these even modern day empirical scientific type materialist type thinkers and you believe in, in the atom and you think the atom is the most fundamental thing, period, even you can understand that atom to be or that substance to be not a static unchanging thing but a dynamic flux or a process so process is substance beautiful there need be no distinction i love it so the unchanging base of reality is flux itself the potentiality that is always transforming and therefore is unchanging in its transformation. And I think that's a really key. So when, when, when scientific thinkers yearn for something that's unchanging so that they can have something that's like a, a bulwark or basis that they can base all of their thinking on, they need something solid that they can rest on. That unchanging thing might not be an atom after all. And this is where it gets tricky. You can imagine there is nothing that doesn't constantly change because that's how the world seems to us. You know, some, of the, some things may stay the same for long periods of time, but inevitably, 
always break down and everything's always breaking down and changing. So if we're trying to understand the most fundamental thing that reality is built upon as something that's solid and unchanging, there is a way of thinking about something that's, that's transforming, something like flux, let's say, whatever that is, something always transforming. Every time you look at it, every time you observe it, it's transforming. It's never the same. But, but pay attention to how, how I said that. Every time you look at it, it's always transforming. It's never the same. What does that mean? That means that what, is, that what is unchanging about it is that it's always changing. Right? Can't that be that unchanging principle that science, science is looking for? What's unchanging about flux is that it's always changing. It seems like a paradox, but it's not. It's amazing. All right, let's go on. He says, Whitehead calls his process philosophy the philosophy of organism because he sees all processes as essentially the same. Both a, a mole and a molecule are organisms existing as systems. All have experiential elements that cannot be abstracted from their physiology. In other words, organism is process. Okay. So what's interesting here is I think we get the idea of organism as process because I gave you that idea of, um, you know, your body. It's always moving. There's this always process, uh, processes going on inside your body, but you're still one organism. But you can think of yourself as this thing that's, that's composed of flux. Everything's constantly changing. And yet on the macro level, there you are. There you are, you know, an organism. So I think we got that. That part's okay. He says both a mole and a molecule are organisms, um, ex existing as systems, and that the experience that they're having can't be abstracted from their physiology. So what he's saying is that, that what makes a mole a mole, an animal, or what, what makes a molecule a molecule, um, has consciousness. It has a sentient element to it. And they're, they're not two separate things. They're ind indistinguishable from each other. So, and that helps us when we understand that what they are is an organism or a process. All right. He also says that there are, um, there are more than one process and that, he, that they're interacting with each other, but that, but that all of them are the same. And that's strange, but it also resonates with me from a from mystic intuition because what it reminds me of is this fractal picture that continues to come up it's like if if there are all these processes going on like the processes of hydrogen turning into helium in the sun and the process of the heat emanating out into space or the processes going on in my body what my cells are doing what my organs are doing and all that if all of those processes are the same then what you what you have is a fractal picture you have a process within a process within a process within a process forever. A pattern within a pattern. That's what the, what, that's what the fractal image is. And that comes up so often in mystic intuition. I just think that's really interesting that it would come up here from Whitehead. Okay. All right. So... Um, so I have a little a little thought here about, and I think we've sort of done this already, but the idea of thinking about yourself as an organism in this context, 
thinking about yourself, always growing, evolving, transforming, changing, both mentally and physically, by the way. So there's components of, <laughs> there's components that are physical and there's com- components that are uh, sentient. And even the cells and the viruses and the bacteria that are that are that are in your body that you know outnumber your cells. By the way, all those mi- microorganisms in your body, even th- they are always transforming, adapting, changing, evolving. And the same thing's true with the molecules and atoms in your body. So you can picture that happening within yourself. All of those individual processes and everything constantly churning and changing, and transforming. So you can imagine that within your body. Now imagine that at the level of the cosmos. I don't know what pops in your head there, but imagine it. All right, back to time for a second. He, he says, Bergson argues, physics cannot distinguish the past from the present and the future, all of which are essential to what time is. So he's pointing this out for a reason, and we're going to see that in a minute, but... That's interesting, that according to the laws of physics, there is no way uh, using, again, the laws of physics to distinguish any one moment from any other, past, present, or future. There's no way that physics can distinguish any of them. But those things are absolutely fundamental to how we understand time. So time may very well be merely awareness of transformation. You know, time is measured or noticed in change. And if nothing changed, there really wouldn't be a perception of time, right? If nothing ever changed, how would you know? The idea would never even occur to you that time is a thing. All right, so it's interesting here, uh, just to repeat, that Bergson argues that physics can't distinguish between, you know, past, present, and future. All right, the next one says Whitehead adds... Uh, that at, at a so-called instant, many qualities essential to actuality are lost. Velocity, direction, and momentum. Okay, so here's, he says, an instant is an abstraction. It's a piece cut out from reality. So again, let's, let's, let's uh, I'll try to come up with an analogy here to help. So, Okay, so in order for you to take any one moment or instant or point in time, you have to understand that what you're doing is you're pulling out one instant from an infinite stream of instants because time doesn't start and it doesn't end. It just keeps going. The thing that we call time is like that. And if you reach in and you grab a moment, a particular instant, and you remove it from the stream of time, what you've done is you've abstracted something. What, you, what you've abstracted isn't time exactly. It's something else. But you're pretending like it's time. You know, what you've done is you've reached in and you've grabbed an, an instant out of an infinite stream of instants and you've pulled it up out of, out of that stream. It's no longer the stream. You know, it's something else. And this is what he's pointing out. He's like, you're losing something very, very important. When you take a single instant, right? If I took a photograph of what's going on in this room right now. I've lost so much of what's important about this room right now. I've lost so much about being. I've lost all the action. I've lost the process. I've abstracted something out of it, but I've lost something really important. 
and, and again, uh, Dr. Sherstead Hughes, or in, in fact, it's Whitehead here, he says that what you've lost is velocity, direction, momentum, all of the action that's going on. And I think that's interesting. It reminds me of quantum uncertainty, and it probably does for you too. It's so in quantum uncertainty, they say that you can't know on the quantum level. You can't know a particle's momentum and position at the same time. You can know its momentum, you can know its position, but you can't know both at the same time. It's impossible. It becomes mathematically impossible to determine that. And it's, they call it quantum uncertainty. They have no idea uh, you know, how, that, how that works. So if atoms are a fiction, there's something that's, that's cut out of reality, that's abstracted away from the process, then uncertainty is completely consistent with Bergson's description of time. Remember, it's just an instant that you reach in and you grab it and you pu pull it out of this infinite stream of time. You don't have time then, right? And, and what, what Whitehead is saying is the same thing is true of an atom. Taking, taking an atom and trying to make sense of reality from an atom is like taking a photograph of this room and trying to understand what's really ha what, what this room is really like. You're looking at an abstraction and pretending like you are learning something true about the process. And that's simply not true. Very, very difficult to see how that's true. All right, he says, Whitehead writes, Undoubtedly, molecules and electrons are abstractions. But to be an abstraction does not mean that an entity is nothing. It merely means that its experience is only one factor of a more concrete element of nature. Okay, so what is that more concrete element of nature? According to Whitehead, that's process, you know? That's the oneness of, of reality. It's the process. And it's interesting, he says, to be an abstraction does not mean to be nothing. That's true. I mean, we know when we measure an electron, when we measure an atom, when we figure out all of the things that science allows us to figure out, that's not nothing. That's huge. And we can do a lot with it. But what we can't do with it is crack the, the, the mystery uh, or answer the question of, of being, of reality. We can't get to the ultimate mystery with an abstraction. What we need is where the abstraction was pulled from, the process, the organism. That's what we need to understand. All right, he goes on, he says, if a finite, delimited thing is an abstraction, then the concrete reality is a process that flows and interweaves with all other processes. Right? Isn't, isn't that what happens in your body? The process is going on in your organs, and the process is going on in your cells, and the process is going on in the molecules, and in your very DNA. All those processes are working together, intertwined, you know? All of those processes are one process, actually. Okay, he says, essential to a process is other processes. None stand in isolation. An atom is an abstraction that includes the environmental forces acting and reacting upon it. It changes with and is dependent upon its environment. This atomic process is everything. There is no unchanging atom lying beneath this process. All right, so when he says essential to process are other processes, and now we can understand, like again, when we're looking at our body, we can see processes at different levels going on all at the same time, working together. 
But this idea of processes requiring other processes, again, brings to mind that fractal picture that comes from mystic intuition. It also brings to mind this idea of cause and effect or stimulus response. You know, it's like um, a process is like that. It's one thing acting on other things and those things acting back on, you know, the first thing. It's a back and forth. It's like a game of tennis. A process is like that. It's like a cause and effect stimulus response. So you would imagine that you have to have that within a process, but also maybe uh, between processes. And so that fractal image comes to mind. And there is no unchanging atom lying beneath the process. Everything is the process. All right, he goes on. He says, for Bergson and Whitehead, the relation of sensor to the sensed, so you might say the relationship of subject to object, is no longer one of subject to representation, but one of part to whole. That's absolutely huge. So, again, for Bergson and Whitehead, for people who are who are keen on this process way of thinking, that they look at subject and object as, as one thing, as the relationship of subject and object is as part to whole. They're one thing. And that is very, very mystical. It harkens all the way back to what we talked about many times uh, about this mythological Ouroboros, the union of opposites from which all of reality is, 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 emerges from. You know, in our, in our earliest myths, and our earliest religious stories, that's the story we tell. That subject and object are one thing, and from their union comes all of the things. <laughs> and, and we have the exact same sentiment in process philosophy. Beautiful. All right, he says, what we sense becomes part of the process that we are. There is no concrete distinction between I and my perceptions. And my identity is not limited to the abstract spatial outline of my body. All right, so we talked about that a little bit with the sun, you know, my identity not being limited to the outline of my body. We saw that when we tried to do it with the sun. The sun is extended far beyond, you know, the, the core of mass that's burning in space. It, it perhaps... Uh, permeates everything. So we, we can kind of understand that if we think about ourselves in the same way. Um, and what he says here about your perceptions sort of becoming a part of yourself, um, that's interesting. It's like you look at something and you get this image and the image sort of uh, is represented in your mind, in your brain even. So you can see that when you see something, it, it, it does exist in your body. It exists as a model in your brain. Uh, and there's more involved with it going on than just that, but that gives you some idea of understanding how what you sense in some ways does become a part of you. But if you don't believe that things you experience really do become a part of you, consider, consider the food you eat becoming your body. Consider how your relationships and interactions formed your personality and consider the memories you hold of the of past experiences and how they remain with you even now consider that your perceptions do become part of you and then he says perception itself is causation 
and this is interesting. This is something we saw from David Chalmers. I'm pretty sure we saw it also from uh, Scott Adams in that little book he wrote, God's Debris. Perception itself is causation. Remember, um, J- David Chalmers was saying that when he said that, uh, trying to explain consciousness, he said you can't. You know, consciousness doesn't supervene on the physical. It can't be explained by physical laws. And causation is like that too. those are the only two things that are like that very very mysterious and the fact that they both fall into that category consciousness and causation it makes you wonder whether there maybe aren't the same thing somehow and that's what that's what Whitehead and uh, Dr. Shirstead Hughes are saying perception itself is causation so perception causes personal transformation you know you you experience something you see something, you consume something, it becomes a part of yourself and it, and it makes you something different from what you were before that perception. You integrate that new information, that new experience into yourself. And that transformed self may then be able to cause some new effect or some further transformation. So in that way, perception is causation. And you, you can look at it that way. And that brings us to our next section, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call, Can We Explore Process? Outside or within? That's what this is called. Can we explore process outside or within? All right, so he begins, he says, God, uh, Whitehead's God is both imminent and transcendent. I think that's what I mean when I say outside and within. Imminent is, is the world outside. It's material reality. It's the here and now. The transcendent, though, that's the stuff beyond reality, right? That's the spirit part, the God part, the supernatural part, the consciousness part. And he says, Whitehead's God is both imminent and transcendent, outside and inside of this self. So we're going to use that as a jumping off place. All right, he says, eternal objects, according to Whitehead. So, again, if you remember, uh, Whitehead's philosophy has all these um, kind of unusual words. We did a little bit of a vocabulary lesson before. But eternal objects are those things that, that he says um, are, are eternal, that, um, that are related to the uh, primordial nature of God, kind of the transcendent part of God. So let, let me just start from the beginning. He says, eternal objects are Whitehead's variant of Plato's forms, of Russell's universals. They are every potential form of mentality, ideas, emotions, sensations, and other forms. So this is an explanation of what, how Whitehead thinks of these things called eternal objects. If you're familiar with Plato's forms, uh, I've given this explanation before, but I think it's a reasonably good one. Um, so the way that this comes up in like ancient Greece would be something like this. You know, Plato would notice that things are beautiful, you know, like a sunset or a human body or a song, and all of them are beautiful. And he recognizes that, but can't quite tell what's similar about these three things that you're calling beauty in every instance, a beautiful song, a beautiful body, a beautiful sunset. What in the world does that mean? So we all understand that those things can be beautiful, but we can't take beauty and put it in a jar and label it beauty because it's a form right? It doesn't exist anywhere exactly. And so Plato said it exists in, in this 
supernatural place, what he calls the world of forms. It's not exactly in the material world, but it is accessible to us. It does bleed into the material world, and that's how you see it in a song, in a body, in a sunset. So this is the type of thing that Whitehead is going to call eternal objects. Um, it's also similar to uh, what Carl, and I think, what, what Carl Jung said when he described archetypes. Remember, archetypes for Carl Jung were something that um, were symbols of of instinct instincts or instinctual behaviors. Um, so I don't want to get too bogged down in it. I just wanted to, I just wanted to share that. So again, we're going to go from eternal objects down here. He, uh, he says eternal objects can exist in time when they so ingress into actuality, but they mostly subsist out of time eternally in their unprehended totality. All right, so if you missed the vocabulary, vocabulary lesson from last episode, you're lost. You're lost right now, but that's okay. I'm, I'll help you. All right, so he says, eternal objects can exist in time when they so ingress into actuality. And ingress is one of those words that Whitehead uses that seems to mean uh, project themselves from this eternal world of forms into the actual material world. And it, seem, it seems to be done by connecting it to, to experiences, by connecting its, these eternal objects to experiences that can be made real or manifest in the world. Now, that's what he means by ingress. But he says they mostly subsist. They mostly exist not in the material world, not attached to experiences, which is this word he, he says, prehended. Not that. Existing all by themselves in this eternal place. And it sounds like potentiality. You know, it sounds like the unconscious, the realm of forms. And he goes on, he says, Thus the objects of our mentality are eternal, though our mentality is temporal. Okay, so what he means by that is your consciousness is not going to exist forever. You know, your, your mentality and your states of mind are going are to go. And, you know, your body is going to go and all that. Um, but the objects that your consciousness uh, that occupy your consciousness, those objects are eternal. Those are the eternal objects he was talking about. They don't go away, you know. Um, well, let me uh, let me just push through here. I, I, I don't want to I don't want to kind of overlap too much. So let me just push. Um, all right. So Bertrand Russell writes this. He says um, universals. Remember, this is Bertrand Russell's version of eternal objects. Universals are not thoughts, though when known, they are objects of thoughts. So, very much the same sentiment. Then he says, Whitehead claims the same point. So now we have Whitehead's version. He says, a color is eternal. It haunts time like a spirit. It comes and it goes. But where it comes, it is the same color. It neither survives nor does it live. All right, so... So I think that so that's that's what he means when he says that our that the objects of our mentality are eternal, even though our our mentality is not. He's like the color green might exist in your mind, but even after you're long dead, the color green still exists. And until a mind comes along to perceive it in an object, it exists still, but not in material reality, in this in this ethereal world of form somehow, in this mental way, in this sentient way, whatever that means. I don't know that Whitehead explains it satisfactorily. At least I haven't gotten into it enough to know the truth of that statement. He calls it the primordial nature of God. And it's like, that's the explanation. It's interesting. 
So now we're going to get into an interesting explanation or an example, rather. So let's let's get back to it. He says, a man is seeing a patch of white, and the example is a cloud. Okay, a man is seeing a patch of white. Where is this whiteness? We cannot say it is in the cloud. Here there exist molecules which themselves are not white. We cannot say that whiteness is in the electromagnetic wave, as the wave without a perceiver will not be white. Okay, so you might be thinking, if it's not in the object and it's not in the light, then maybe it's in the observer, right? He goes on, he says, the whiteness is not in the anatomy of the percipient. It's not in the eyes or the nerves or the brain. So where is it? Right? Where is it? It's in the world of forms. Right? It's in the world of forms. All right, he says, though the object that is whiteness is correlated with activity in the brain, with, a, with the electromagnetic light wave, and with the cloud, this correlate is not identical to any of these. It's, right? White is something else. It's not exactly the electromagnetic activity. It's not in the cloud itself. It's not in your eyes or brain. It's correlated in all those places, but it isn't in any of those places. So how do you explain that? He goes on, he says, The object of thought, feeling, sensation is, as Russell concludes, neither in space nor in time, neither material nor mental, Yet it is something, right? It is something. I agree with that. And the hair stands up on my arms. What a mystery. What a mystery. The color white is not in white objects. It's not in the, the, the electromagnetic wave of light. It's not in the, in the body of the observer. But it is there. And if I die and somebody else comes along to see the same thing, they're going to see it too. It just, where does it exist? And that's, that's how you get philosophers coming up with this, the ideas like, like uh, Carl Jung does with the, with the unconscious or what Whitehead does with, um, you know, with the, the primordial nature of God or Plato does with the world of forms or religions do with places like heaven or nirvana, right? All right, he says, eternal objects are the condition of experiences. And for Whitehead the creative advance of the universe. So there's a connection here. These eternal objects are a condition of experience, of sentience, and a condition of the creative advance, which if you remember, that's, that's really Whitehead's God. That's the process. All right, he says, as Russell put it, a truer image of the world is obtained by picturing things as entering into the stream of time from an eternal world outside. That's an interesting, an interesting image to play around with. You've got this stream of time, which is also the, the place I would call being. And yet somehow, they're all of the most important things exist outside of that stream. You know, these eternal objects, the primordial nature of God, um, you know, potentiality, all that stuff. And it just dips in, in and out of that, of that stream. And when it dips in, you have something in being, you have some real reality, you know, something that's really there, but it can just get pulled in and out. And I get this image of, you know, quantum particles popping in and out of existence. Where are they going? They're popping in and out of the stream of time, something like that. 
And it's mystic intuition that tells you that this eternal world outside of time is it, it exists and, and it's found within. The eternal realm of forms exists within sentience. That's my take. All right, the realm in which all eternal objects subsist is the transcendent aspect of Whitehead's deity. He says it's an insentient dimension, as sentience requires the ingression into physical actuality. All right, so I, I'm going to resist that a little bit, but I want to just slow down here because there's a lot going on. So in the, in the realm in which all eternal objects exist, that's what Whitehead calls the primordial nature of God. It's like a place or, a, or an aspect of God, if you will, that is not sentient. Because everything that's sentient, according to Whitehead, is only sentient when it, when, it, when it dips into that stream of time and becomes reality, when it ingresses into experience and becomes physically real. That's when it becomes sentient. And boy, I just don't know if I can follow Whitehead down this line. I think I resist calling the, trans the transcendent aspect of reality insentient. I think of it more as the unconscious or the unknown part of ourselves. While we may say that the unconscious is the opposite of conscious, I'd argue that you cannot have one without the other. They are one, and that oneness is sentient. So, you know, this is, this is going to be a pretty significant break between me and, and, and Whitehead, and I, maybe I'm misunderstanding him. I probably am. Um, but I just don't know that I would call the primordial nature of God or God at all, however you, however you slice it, insentient. I think God and sentience are synonyms, for lack of a better word. All right. <clears throat> All right, so now we get to the meat of it, guys. We're, we're, we're getting close to the end. But this section I call integration of experience, overcoming bamboozlement. So I just like saying bamboozle. It's an interesting word. You don't get, how often do you get to say bamboozle? Uh, all right, this section is called integration of experience, overcoming bamboozlement. It starts like this. The selection of eternal objects is conditioned by our physical needs, and thus only a fraction are positively prehended. The rest rejected through negative prehensions. All right, so again, a lot going on here, a lot of those uh, whitehead terms, so let me just slow down and, and help you to understand. All right, he brings up this idea that eternal objects are, again, these archetypes or these, um, um, these eternal objects that, that whitehead talks about, that they don't, that they don't, bleed into reality all at once that in fact they're selected and i really want a better explanation for for what is meant by that but but this will be clear enough he's basically saying that we don't get all of these eternal objects at once and that maybe maybe to get them all at once would be overwhelming or incomprehensible or you know something like that that we couldn't handle it um you know i don't know something like that but what he's saying here is that we don't get them all at once, but rather the eternal objects that bleed into reality or get attached, ingressed onto our experiences, that they're selected. And how they're selected is by our physical need. Um, this is the idea that we talked about before with Henri Bergson's um, description of like a reducing valve. Where he's like, if we could experience 
everything there is to experience, we, we wouldn't be able to function. So, so our biology, like our brain, let's say, it's like a reducing valve that we can use to sort of filter out all of the, you know, um, uh, terrible force of conscious experience so that we can have, we can dial it down to a level that we can actually deal with. Um, and so there, this is connected to this idea that, that the eternal objects that ingress into reality are selected and they're selected based on our physical needs. So there's like a, um, there's like a, um, um, like a, like a biological evolution type of a, type of a thing going on. Uh, so let me just push through. He says, it is my contention that these negative prehensions can be eliminated in degree by the intake of psychedelic chemicals. All right, so let me just t take a step back here. When he said that the eternal objects that, that, that get ingressed into, into reality are selected, what he means is that most of them are filtered out. And he, he, he says that that's a process called negative prehensions. I mean, that's gobbledygook as far as I'm concerned. What that means is he's f that we're filtering out all the rest of this great power that we might call God um, that, that uh, Whitehead calls eternal objects that exist in the world of forms, whatever that is, that we're going to filter out most of that stuff. Now, what Dr. Sherstead Hughes says is we can, we can poke holes in that filter of ours and get more of these eternal objects, we can expose ourselves to more than we could, that we would otherwise be able to do by taking psychedelic chemicals, that it, it opens up Bergson's reducing valve and allows us to experience more of the potential that we are, more of the potential that the world, that, that reality is composed of, that we can literally pull back that veil a little bit and experience God, you know, or something, something closer to it. We can experience the process, you know. So it's like we can bypass that filtering process with psychedelics. And Dr. Sherstead Hughes says, such elimination entails the integration, nay, elevation, of one's consciousness into the primordial nature of God, apotheosis. So apotheosis is an interesting Greek word. It means to become God. And so if you've ever done psychedelics and you've had that peak type of experience, you know exactly what he means. You become God. Um, he says you, you elevate your consciousness to the primordial nature of God. That's what Whitehead said is like Jordan Peterson's chaos. It's that, it's that font of potentiality from which all things can emerge, which the entire material cosmos came from, and you yourself. And you get to poke your head into that world of forms and make friends with the primordial nature of God. You can do that or you have that possibility through the ingestion of psychedelic chemicals. An integration of consciousness is what he calls that. All right, so I do have a little bit of a question on this. And uh, I, I don't know if you picked up on it, but when he says, when he says that we can do psychedelics, and we can, we can enter this primordial nature of God. And it's experience of apotheosis, of becoming God. It's that one with the universe psychedelic experience. We have that experience. Earlier he said that the primordial nature of God is insentient. Because in order for it to be sentient or conscious, it has to be ingressed into reality, remember? It has to break that plane and become real for it to be insentient, or, or sentient rather. Now he's saying that we can 
take psychedelics and enter the primordial nature of God. And I'm just wondering, like, look, I'm sentient. If I enter the primordial nature of God, then the primordial nature of God is sentient. And that aligns more with my thoughts about about the nature of God. And it seems like a... It seems kind of like a paradox. It seems to me like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, and I really wonder what I'm not getting here. What am I not getting? If the primordial nature of God is not sentient, but I can but I can reach that state through psychedelic drugs, it seems to me that it is sentient. At least it is while I'm there. Um, so again, I I have a little bit of a a little bit of a um, divergence from from Whitehead there. Already says. Whitehead argued that psychedelic experience is a vertical, lateral, and temporal integration of, of sentience upward to apotheosis, which just again just means elevation to divinity, to becoming God, downward, which he calls inmorosis, sideward and backward. So, so psychedelic experience is a vertical, lateral, and temporal integration of your consciousness. What does that mean? All right, so um, so Russell described it this way. He says, We may hope in a mystic illumination to see the eternal ideas as we see objects of sense, and we may imagine that the ideas exist in heaven. All right, so even Bertrand Russell here is saying that in mystic intuition, that you see those eternal ideas, you see the potentiality of God, whatever that means, the same way you see regular objects in the world. And you imagine that they exist in this other place. This is where the idea of something like heaven or, or a realm of the gods uh, comes from. This idea that you've seen things that don't, you know don't exist in, in material reality, but you believe them to be real. And they existed in a place. And what was that place? Heaven, the realm of the gods, the world of forms, that kind of thing. So even Bertrand Russell, the, the great modern atheist philosopher, is saying in mystic intuition, you encounter these archetypal ideas, you encounter these primordial, you know, instincts or, um, or or eternal objects or whatever you want to call them, and you imagine that they exist in the supernatural realm. All right, he says um, such upward integration into primor- into the primordial nature of God may not be joyful. It may evoke intense imperial dread of the kind Rudolf Otto called the Mysterium Tremendum. So this is a little bit of a warning here, and it's a warning about a bad trip. If we're talking about taking psychedelic drugs to, to enter this state of consciousness that Whitehead calls the primordial nature of God, if we can if we can integrate our consciousness and move up to this higher level of consciousness, um, that that comes with some risk. And, and again, one of those risks are that the experience might not be a good one. It might, be a, it might, in truth, be a terrible one. And he goes on to offer explanations for why they may be terrible, and I think it's pretty interesting. So let me read this to you. He says, As certain eternal objects have a being which would usually be ingressed in, in epics, the alienness of such objects could further the sense of dread-inducing sublime. Okay, so what he's saying here is that these eternal objects which, which ingress into reality, or they attach themselves to experience and become real, become manifest in the world, in the material world, that some of those things get 
integrated into the material world slowly, bit by bit, over long stretches of time. And that's intentional, because if you were to make such a big change all at once, it might have unintended consequences. It might throw the whole, the whole thing, you know, um, uh, throw a wrench in the whole machine or something. So, so it has to be slowly and gradually ingressed into, the, into reality. And if you stick your head into this realm of forms and you saw it all at once, and it's something that uh, it would have been a change otherwise that would have happened over thousands of years or, or, or hundreds of thousands of years, what it, what, it, what it was that you were seeing might be the scariest shit you can possibly imagine. You know, you're supposed to be experiencing it little by little over generations and generations to get used to it or to, to, to make it palatable. And instead, you're sticking your head right in its face and saying, you know, what you're seeing is alien and terrible, like a DMT trip. You know, you might, you might, you might make that uh, connection or, or a really bad LSD trip. That's what he's talking about. And he says, such experiences cannot be categorized as recreation, but rather as the inmost aim and highest achievement of cognition as Santayana calls entrance into this realm of essence, ab abterno. So this other philosopher who I don't know much about, but uh, Satyana, uh, he calls this realm of forms um, ab abterno, which in Latin just means um, the eternal. All right, so through psychedelic intake, we allow upward integration into the unactualized realm of eternal objects. Through psychedelic ingestion, we increase the self-consciousness of, of God. All right, so, so the idea that taking psychedelics and having this you know, crazy mystic experience, entering the primordial realm, uh, realm of God, if you're using Whitehead's terms, that what that does increases the self-consciousness of God. And I find that interesting. It's like there's a way of understanding this metaphysics that says um, everything that gets brought into the material world is so, something like an aspect of God that God can now observe, uh, observe and experience and enjoy. And so that happens in the realm of being, you know, in the material world. It doesn't happen in the primordial na nature of God. It doesn't happen in the world of forms. Um, what you know, Whitehead's trying to tell us that it, it, that. That's insentient. There's not even consciousness there, which, again, I, I have some issues with. Uh, but this seems to imply that it's not just possible for God, whatever whatever that is, to, to, to put itself into the material world uh, as being and experience itself that way. But it's also possible for being, right, for consciousness in the material world to do the same, to reach back into its, the place it came from, you know, the primordial nature of God, and experience what it is that way also. And it can do that through psychedelic experience, according to, according to Dr. Shirsa Hughes. And what it's seeing there is God, the unactualized realm of eternal objects. It's something that can be, be brought into, you know, material actuality, could be made real, but hasn't yet All right, he goes on, he says, We are never fully conscious of the ceaseless activities of our bodies. Yet the eminences of these bodily cells are vaguely felt by the person, contributing to a sense of health, joy, or melancholy. All right, so I'm going to stop there just to say, 
what we've been talking about so far is consciousness integrating upwards, right? This upward integration towards higher levels of consciousness, towards God consciousness. Now what we're talking about is consciousness of lower levels, right? He's saying like, look, you might not have thought about this, but if you think you don't have a vague consciousness of what your cells and organs are experiencing, think twice because you have this sense when you feel good that you call health and when it's missing, you notice, right? And there's things like joy and melancholy, which have to do with your psychological health and you feel and you know something's going on, right? Even though you, you don't have you don't have a you know a, a detailed um, understanding of what's going on in your cells or organs or brain or whatever, but you do feel a feeling. Where is it coming from? Like if your body is is doing what it's supposed to be doing, you feel it. It's called health. So there is something subtle that connects the level of consciousness that you have as a as a human body as a, as a self to what's going on kind of on smaller levels inside your body. So now we're talking about something like rather than um, vertical going upwards uh, into higher levels of consciousness, we're talking about going down into lower levels. Um, so let me, uh, let me put it this way. All right, uh, I'll, just, I'll just continue on here. He says, as well as the upward integration into uh, alien, exogenous, eternal objects, this may also allow downward integration into the endogenous subjectivities of the subordinate entities of our body. And this is what he calls enmorosis. When he says endogenous subjectivities of our body, he's saying it just means inside our body. You're going down into the conscious level of your cells, of your molecules, of your atoms, that kind of thing. So again, imagine that. Psychedelics may allow you to go up into higher levels of consciousness, or down deep into yourself, into these lower constituent levels of consciousness that exist inside you. And then he says, of course the feelings of these subordinate entities will be foreign, perhaps explaining in part the ineffability of the mystical state. Okay, so people have a hard time describing what a mystic experience is like. And, when what, and what Dr. Shurston Hughes is pointing out is if, what, if what's really going on there is your consciousness goes up <clears throat> to experience some higher level of consciousness, like you become God, God consciousness, or you sink down into yourself and you become the conscious, the conscious level of your cells or your molecules, that what it would be like to be a molecule or to be God are so strange and foreign to us that trying to explain it when you come, come back to your senses would, of course, be impossible. And that is what he's saying. Like, this explains why it's impossible to speak about. Because what is being experienced is something completely alien and foreign to our day, our daily experience. It's like trying to experience, trying to describe what a cell experiences, trying to describe what an atom experiences. Good luck. All right, he says. Of perhaps greater interest lies lateral integration. So lateral means side to side. What does he mean by that? He says Paul Devereaux offers this experience on, on LSD. So Paul's going to give us his experience. He says, quote, I found my awareness slipping inside that of a daffodil. While still being conscious of sitting in a chair, I could also sense my petals. 
Then an exquisite sensation cascaded through me, and I knew I was experiencing light falling on those petals. So that is lateral integration. On LSD, Paul Devereaux became a daffodil, and he felt what it feels like to be a daffodil. Okay? All right, it goes on. He says, for the philosophy of organism, all perception involves the integration of the object into the subject. Yet this is always limited. Whitehead highlights, quote, in the psychedelic mode of perception, we enter the subject of the object. So imagine, so imagine your cell, you, you think about one of your skin cells as an object. It's not you, it's something else. It's this little, you know, discrete thing. We can call it an object. This is a cell. He's saying that in that peak psychedelic experience, that you enter into the cell and you become the self of the cell. He says, we enter the subject of the object. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, he says, the psychedelic mode of perception can allow for a backward integration. This is part of the basis for contemporary studies into the value of psychedelic, ther psychedelic therapy. So for any of you who have heard of psychedelic therapy, it's being used right now for treating PTSD. So when he says that the psychedelic mode of perception can allow for backward integration, what he's talking about is your consciousness moving into your memories backwards in time so that you can deal with things that have happened that you didn't deal with correctly at the time or sufficiently at the time that you can potentially use psychedelics to move backwards into time and, and, <laughs> and experience things again in a, in a meaningful and productive way. And again, that's being done. That's being done in modern medicine. So there you have it. All right, he says, uh, here's a quote from Whitehead again. He says, what is done in the world is transformed into a reality in heaven. And the reality in heaven passes back into the world. And again, hair standing up on my arms, that, that is Whitehead describing exactly what I described in, in Mystic Intuition, and I've described it on the podcast before, uh, called, called the being generator. So I literally considered consciousness to be God and consciousness to be being, me, myself, and all of material reality. And I imagined that, that God experiences being and changes as a consequence of the experience, right? And because being is a reflection of God, it, it being changes also. So you end up having this back and forth between God and reality, and the experience of God, of God to reality and reality to God is constantly transforming both of them, okay? And that's exactly what Whitehead just said. So my picture of this being generator, this just change generator, is, is spelled out, again, between God, which exists in heaven, and being, which exists on earth. Whitehead says, what is done in the world is transformed into a reality in heaven, and the reality in heaven passes back into the world. That's exactly right. All right, he says, the question concerning forward integration, so this is the future we're talking about. He says, in the philosophy of organism, this is not possible, as the future is not determined and thus does not exist in its entirety. He says, creativity primes the advance of the universe. 
the not yet created cannot be foreseen. However, an upward integration, so when we're going, again, when we're, when we're becoming God, eternal objects can be experienced, which would otherwise have their ingression in future epics. So while, while he's saying, when you integrate vertically and you, your consciousness goes up into the realm of God consciousness, whatever, however you want to take that, when you get, when you get to that primordial nature of God, as Whitehead would say, um, that what you're going to see there is the potential that you are, but the unmanifest potential. You're going to see God before it's become anything specific. That's the flux. That's the process that Whitehead talks about. That's what you're going to see. And he said, because those things, um, because God, you know, God can become anything, is right? It's potentiality, right? Because God can become something in the future, what you're seeing in a way is like seeing the future. You're seeing the un, the not yet manifest, right? That's cool. And this apotheosis, this becoming God thing, uh, that experience of the not yet manifest. Um, it, it, again, it's not exactly an experience of the future, but it is an experience of the, of the, uh, you know, what will, what will be, right? What, what's yet to come. All right, then he sums all this up. He says, the psychedelic mode of perception allows for a three-dimensional integration of experience. The vertical dimension upwards and downwards into endogenous primitive pieces of perception. The lateral dimension along which we can integrate sideward into other exogenous entities, like the daffodil, right? The temporal dimension can push us backwards to memories and fragmentarily forward in glimpses of future types of sentience. So the idea is that, is that we can overcome potentially, or at least to some degree, and maybe learn more about the most fundamental you know, uh, attributes of reality and being through the ingestion of psychedelic chemicals by paring down that, that, that valve, Berg, you know, Bergson's valve, experiencing more of what, what we are, more of the sentience that we are. And that, that, that's something that can allow us to see within ourselves and to see beyond ourselves. And what types of potential that holds, scientific, philosophical, and otherwise? I mean, who knows? All right, let me wrap this up for you guys. Here's my conclusion. Whitehead's metaphysics provide an explanation of psychedelic experience. He believed that matter embodies something ultimately fundamental to reality, something that I would call God, but we might understand it best as sentient potentiality. It exists eternally in Plato's world of forms, in heaven, or in Whitehead's creative advance. It is this realm, the unconscious realm of the gods, that Dr. Shersted Hughes suggests we may be visiting in psychedelic experience. And what we encounter there might be sentient potentiality itself. These are what Whitehead called eternal objects, Plato called forms, and Jung called archetypes. According to Whitehead, eternal objects are the potential for experience which comes to experience itself. It then evolves into more complex forms of mentality, each made materially real or concrescent, as he says, by unconsciously influencing those experiences that have already, be, already been made real 
to transform into something new, something more. In this way, material reality is an organism that grows and evolves, fed by the creative advance of its own potential. It is fed by the unconscious, by the eternal, like a metaphysical seed whose roots rest in potentiality and whose bloom opens into the material cosmos. It is a process that eternally connects potentiality to actuality, subject to object, and matter to sentience. So psychedelics may be a way for us to open the throttle of Bergson's reducing valve and experience more fully what we actually are. To experience a movement upward through the web of experience that gave us birth, all the way to apotheosis, to the face of God. But wait, there's more. According to Dr. Shirsted Hughes, psychedelics may also allow us to explore the entire fractal web of experience, the flux in its entirety, upward to God, sideward to all other beings, even temporally backwards in time. Lastly, there is a movement downward or inward into oneself, which strikes me as strange and familiar all at once. You see, there's a tradition of shamanism that goes back to the beginning of our religious past and echoes the upward and downward integration of consciousness that Whitehead lays out. We see it represented in mythology as the tree of life, you know, the Viking Yggdrasil, the world tree the Axis Mundi. We see it in Jewish Kabbalah, in medieval alchemy, and in the occult, as well as many mythological traditions. But in shamanism, we have the example par excellence. The priests of shamanism all over the ancient world consumed psychoactive plants in order to heal the sick. They understood no distinction between psychological physical or spiritual ills. They simply ingested the plant, left their body, and entered the body of the sick individual. There they quested for the source of the illness, down into the organs, cells, and beyond. The shaman's very occupation was the apotheosis and inmorosis of Whitehead's description, the entering into eternity and navigating it upward and downward. Can you imagine being able to enter into the deepest depths of your being and learning all that that holds? Can you imagine being so comfortable with the descent that you exist as well in actuality as in potentiality? Can you imagine being at home in both places? Being simultaneously alive in both realms? What potential could this hold? What might we be able to learn? What new powers might we gain? What obstacles might we overcome? Exactly what potential might we find in potentiality? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking... It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. 
See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.